to the Act 2 podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I am Tasha Hugh. And I am Josh Hallman. And as a reminder, Act 2 is a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter, of which this podcast is just one of our many initiatives. Thank you for joining us here. You can also join us on our very new Patreon, patreon.com backslash Act 2 Writers. Yeah. It's great. Every month, Josh and I release a live break of a new spec we're working on so you can see how our brains work, how you develop ideas. How not to develop ideas. How (laughs) not to develop ideas. Um, We're going to take this thing all the way to outline whether it kills us or not. Yeah. And then we alternate between releasing those and doing live Q&As with our Patreon subscribers. So we actually get to talk to you guys in real time. We can talk about anything you want from your script idea to questions you have about the business. If you have a meeting coming up or a meeting you just took, we can talk about that, how to prep for it, whatever, whatever you want. It's your time during those live Q&As. And you have access also to our Act 2 community chat if you're a Patreon subscriber, which is a direct line to us, but also to other screenwriters in the Patreon as well. So if you're out there looking for a screenwriting community, head over to our Patreon, check it out. We have a few tiers so you can find the best one for you. Amazing. But maybe you hate community. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. In which case, (laughs) you can still DM us. 2024. We're growing. We're growing the community. We're growing the community. We are. We're trying. We're trying. We know you guys want community. That's like the number one thing every writer tells us they want. So here we are, guys. Let's build it. If we build it, they will come. I was uh, just recently the Apple Vision goggles. Like they were, they're going to be released later this year. And I rewatched this advertisement for it. Well, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Okay. And I was just thinking to myself, like sitting in a room with someone and like two people wearing goggles talking, like, and that just seems like the worst case scenario. And so when you're talking about community, I was just thinking about how important it is. Now, granted, I know we're doing a Zoom and and we're 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 doing things through a computer, but getting in person is so important and it's just this yeah. thing that's going away that is really weird yeah and that's all i like in person you're probably like you're ordering the the vision goggles like yesterday me you I'm are <laughs> i am actually i can't wait for these vision goggles <laughs> you know in the most recent commercial they had it was really brilliant the marketing for apple's unbelievable but they had all these people putting on like from uh, different entertainment, like cartoons, this, putting their like goggles on. It was like Iron Man, Ant-Man, cartoon characters. And then at the very end, it was a clip from Back to the Future. Oh, and, no. And then Marty's like, Doc, we don't have enough road to get to 88 miles per hour. And he's like, where we're going, we don't need roads. And he flicks his goggles down and then <gasps> flies off. And I was like, I'm getting it. Oh, no. This is it. <laughs> That's it. That trailer was just tailored to you. How do we know they didn't just create that for you and feed it into your eyeballs? Man. Damn. I don't know. Well, (laughs) in other news. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Today, our topic is imposter syndrome. What it is. What do you do about it? How do you manage it? Does it ever go away? All the burning questions we have. But first... This Week in Writing. This Week in Writing. This Week in Writing. I watched, or I recently purchased True Lies through Apple. and Well, not technically purchased then because they could take it back as we've discovered. That's This is very true. You need to get a DVD. I recently licensed True Lies okay. through Apple. <laughs> uh-huh. Which, by the way, as somebody who has written action comedies, I used to search for true lies because I wanted to study true lies. And there was a very extended period of time where you could not find true lies anywhere. Mm. Not Amazon, not Apple. It wasn't streaming on Netflix or Hulu or Peacock or Paramount or whatever else. Oh. You just couldn't find it. And so it appeared on Apple. And I said, done. Boom. Got it. It was like $10. And I started to look through the extras 
of True mm. Lies. Yeah. Which are amazing. Number one, they have the original shooting script of True Lies. Whoa. So it's page by page, and you just use your remote to swipe through each page. That's incredible. They have um, original artwork. There's some behind-the-scenes stuff. And also, which I sent you, I filmed my television of me watching this. There is a clip of James Cameron talking about how True Lies came to be and how Arnold Schwarzenegger approached him with it. It was kind of actually loosely based off of hmm. this French film, which was so, so different. Like James Cameron took his own take on it. But he was talking about action comedies. And it really hit me because I've been in the position so many times where I'm in a meeting and I tell people and or I talk to producers or you or anyone. Hey, we talk about action comedies and it's, it's this idea of like, well, is it an action movie or is it a comedy? Like what kind of action comedy is it? And I feel like True Lies is so unique. And in these extras, James, James Cameron was talking about this. He was even mm. saying how difficult it is to tackle an action comedy because it's like you're servicing these two very different things and it could go two different ways. So it's almost like the scariest thing you can do. And when yeah. I heard him say this, it gave me comfort because I've struggled with this so for so long where someone's like, what kind of movie is it? You know, and is this like a Will Ferrell movie or is this True Lies? And I tend to write in the True Lies territory. Mm -hmm. And that's its own kind of action comedy. Yeah, and I feel like the thing that stands out to me, and there are multiple layers of this, but like the thing that stands out to me about what makes True Lies a true action comedy versus a Will Ferrell movie um, is that the action part is always taken very seriously. The danger feels very real. At no point is there like slapstick action. Mm -hmm. It's The action is serious. And then there are comedic bits like around it like some of the dialogue around it is very funny and then there are other moments throughout but it never gets slapstick even in those other moments it never gets slapstick but the comedy can build more in the quieter moments that are around the action so that to me is where like you can create that but if you look at just like a, an action comedy that we sort of typically think of now the action itself becomes funny sure the the comedy blends into the action way too much to me like that's what separates the idea no i agree it's very difficult like even in mr and mrs smith that works because of the dynamic of the husband and mm -hmm. wife and the action in there they can be arguing about their relationship while there's this action going on so that's very specific but i completely agree with you that you know and i love will ferrell and i love like movies yeah. like the other guys a lot but yeah if something happens they're like why are my ears still ringing, you know? And in True Lies, it's just kind of like, you're burnt. Now it's time to mm -hmm. go on. But anyway, someone check yep. out the extras for True Lies when you license it from Apple. It's great. <laughs> All right. My smallish one is that I've started watching Pokemon. Wow. Paul has turned me on to this. Yes. And uh, we watched it before bed. And what's interesting to me is it's a very like cut and paste show. <clears throat> you sort of always know it's going to happen, um, but it still always progresses forward. But then Paul next door to me uh, has been editing another kid show that has clearly taken from Pokemon, almost like word for word, sort of what the action uh, sort of phrases are in the show come from Pokemon. Wow. But and then I've not watched the show, but I can kind of tell a little bit from from stuff that he's editing and that I can hear. The character piece is missing. So Pokemon, even though it's cut and paste and very simple, the character of Ash, the main character, like he has heart and there's like something unique and special about him and the way he treats the world and the Pokemon around him that starts to really make you invest in him succeeding and all the whatever his journey that he's on. Whereas these cut and paste shows think that the world stuff is the stuff that people like. So I'm going to cut and paste that. Not realizing that you could put Ash in any show, in any world, and it's because of who he is that makes me want to watch Pokemon one million episodes in. Yeah. Um, so I'm just, just highlighting that. No, that that's little, great. That little difference there. 
character always prevails. Always. I love that. I'm going to check it out as a Pokemon collector. I will check this show out. <laughs> I used to make fun of you, Josh, and now I'm in. I, I didn't think I would be here, but here I am. Okay. <laughs> I have another one. Okay. This deals with you. Okay. And, yeah, this is a surprise. So a couple weeks ago, you had mm-hmm. sent Dave and I a message about this incredible idea that you had for an opening of a film. And you were like, I had this idea of th- a couple things happen, and you were trying to figure out where Act 2. Is it my bus movie? Yes. Yeah. Which was awesome. It was, it was, and then, <laughs> but what was crazy about it was you, you presented the what if, and you know I love the what if of like, hey, I uh-huh. have this concept. What happens now? What if this happens? What if that happens? And it just got me thinking about like how ideas are created. And I was wondering, this is kind of a heavy question. Was that, do you normally do that where you're like, I have this idea for a new opening or I have this scene idea? Like how, how, when you're like coming up with like a a story idea, do you like, where do do you do that often where it's like this like thought, Mm. uh, thought out of like, okay, this is what act one could be. What could this movie be? I always think of act one. Act yeah, one is so I great. always think of Act One. I never know what Act Two is, which is always my problem, and why I can't write specs very quickly or at all. But like, Easy. I was as at Disney World, and at Disney World, you have to take a bus from your hotel to the actual parks because the place is so huge. And we were taking this bus at night, and as we were waiting for our bus, I saw there were there was like two sort of buses in waiting like dead buses like the, the the bus drivers were done with their shift and they were just like sitting across the street from me and I was watching this and one guy was just like casually eating his dinner and then this other bus was just open and this guy comes from behind me and he looks like he's just another tourist at Disneyland and he walks towards one of the buses with the door open that's totally black and the other guy who's eating his dinner that bus driver looks at him like huh I don't think I know that guy, but I'm not going to do anything about it because I'm sure he's a bus driver because he's going towards the bus. So this guy, this just random guy seems to get on this bus. And then my mind started going from there like, oh, he's probably not a real bus driver. What if he steals the bus? Why would someone steal a bus? And those kind of questions came in. And then like that day passed. Next day, we're, we're on a bus going back to our hotel. And in Disney World, it's just there's just open land. It's just forest everywhere. And then these like little enclaves of stuff happening. So we're in this like forested area and we thought he was going to our hotel, but he passes our hotel. And I'm like, surely he's just going because we have three hotels on our stop. So maybe like our hotel is the last, even though he passed it, maybe he's looping around to ours. So then my brain was like, but what if he's not? Like at what point would I catch this guy that he's gone off the the beaten path and is taking us the wrong way. And at what point is it too late? So I combined sort of that thought <laughs> that I should speak up and say something um, with the guy from yesterday who just hopped on the bus. And then I was like, well, what insidious thing could happen here? Mm-hmm. And that's where the idea came from. And I don't know where it goes from there. But, no, but I, I still thought it was so fun. And I don't know if you had, I don't know. There was something about it where I was like, I love that Tosh is asking about this right now. This is like the best. <laughs> At Disney World. Like it was the really dark horror movie. No, <laughs> like for a sure. Movie. You sent it. And like, I, I think I like, I like read the message late. And I was like, what is happening at Disney World? <laughs> Are you okay? And I, realized, <laughs> I realized my brain works. Like I thought this was a sort of normal behavior. But then when I would talk to Paul about it, like I pitched him my idea. And he was like, I don't know. Like that's <laughs> that's a little weird. Like, what if it's more like this? And it was like something more heroic for the bus driver. It was like, what? That's not what the movie is. The movie is dark. What are you talking about? <laughs> so I guess what? I'm just sick. I don't know. No way. In conclusion, I just loved it, and it was a reminder of how ideas just come out of left field, and and yeah. you can just run with something. And I just I freaking loved it. That's yeah. All. Thanks. Hey. If only someone would just write it for me. <laughs> so here, the here's the setup. <laughs> go. <laughs> go. <laughs> uh, all right. Go for it. Okay. So someone asked me a question yesterday. 
No, let me take a step back. He said that one of his goals for the year was to get better at talking about character and like pitching his story when he's in general meetings, when he's in a writer's room. Just like, how do you, how do you <laughs> express your ideas in a clear and concise fashion? Because he finds that he rambles a lot. And he also finds that he apologizes a lot, which we'll get into when we talk about imposter syndrome. But he finds that like he'll pitch an idea and be like, well, like in my head, it's, it makes more sense or I'm sorry, I'm not pitching it right or whatever. Like he'll sort of qualify everything and then he just starts to ramble on and on. And he listens to the podcast where he's like, if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> you suffer from this as well. Like how did you get over it? And I absolutely suffered from this. And it took me, unfortunately, there's like no book to read, I think, that improves this. If there is one, let me know. But for me, it was just practice, practice, practice on how to talk about character and getting it wrong mm -hmm. and like seeing the point to at which producers stopped listening yeah. and, and tuned out and knowing like, oh, that's kind of my time limit. Oh, shit. Like, that's really short. <laughs> and, and then also like because it, I say it's about practice, it's also being in rooms and like really nailing it how you describe something and then seeing the person light up that teaches you like oh that's the kind of phrasing that people respond to so it is just trial and error unfortunately but I also think something that I've practiced and something that kind of can give you a head start on working on this if this is something you also struggle with for me is always that less is more and that if you take almost like a bird's eye view, a 50,000 foot step back of what your characters and idea is. Like, let's say you're going into a general meeting. We talked about this last week. You're inevitably going to pitch something that you are working on in that meeting. And there is a high chance of you rambling and rambling about what that is and almost pitching the entire thing, which you absolutely do not have to do. You should probably just sum it up in about two to three sentences, just very quickly. So if you take that 50,000 step view back, what is your story about? Is it about someone who loses a brother and has to get over that grief and become stronger because of it? Like what is the, the emotional core of your story? And then what is the very basic version of the journey? Find that two to three sentence kind of pitch about what your, your script is. Maybe five sentences. I don't want to constrain you, but don't carry on for a minute. You, you're pitching it very quickly. And if you need to, practice that and take that into your meeting. So that's something you can do. But for me, it was trial and error and learning that the simplest way of describing your characters and your story is always going to be the one that interests people. And if they want more details, you can give them those later. And that's definitely happened. Like I've pitched an idea very succinctly and they're like, oh, well, like... Well, then what happens at the end? Like, how does she get mm -hmm. over that? Oh, well, this, this, and this. Now I can start to tell you a little bit more. But um, whenever you feel yourself in the weeds, you are in the weeds. That is a real feeling. Oh, you are in the weeds. <laughs> Learn from that mistake. It's okay. We all do it. Even those executives do it. When I've heard them try and pitch me stuff, they will often get in the weeds as well. So it's just practice, practice, practice. Do you struggle with this too? Um, or have I've you in the past? I, yes and yes it's it yeah you find yourself in the weeds big time and so I, I will sometimes will just tangent off because it feels right and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't like my brain if i it's like taking a swing and being like you know what i'm gonna try to go down this road and see if it hits and it may, yeah. might hit and sometimes it does and other times it doesn't and when it doesn't i'm like shit but i what yeah what really hit me was that sometimes people, myself, everybody, you'll, you'll apologize after saying, Oh, sorry, that's not it. Like, here I have this idea. This character runs into the woods and maybe runs into their missing mother. Uh, you know what? No, sorry, sorry. No. Okay. That's that. Sorry. No, that doesn't make sense. You know, like where you're mm -hmm. like apologizing for what you're trying to create. And that's really difficult to, uh, kind of work through and figure out. So there's, you should never be apologizing unless you offend somebody. Or something. I mean, there's reasons you should apologize, but what I feel, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but you not know what I mean. Your, not for your story. Yeah. I struggle with this a bit, specifically in writer's rooms. And there's something that a friend of mine is starting to practice. She's a TV writer. And I'm, a big thing that people say in, in TV rooms is, this is a bad pitch, but what if blah, 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 blah. 
And the reason you say that, you preface it, is because you're you're trying to let the room know, I'm not pitching exactly this because I don't know exactly what it is, but I know it's kind of like this. So yeah. the bad version is this. And she's starting to practice not saying that because she doesn't want to, out of the gate, tell people it's a bad pitch because it might be a good one. Right. <laughs> she no, wants to build her sure. confidence. So she, like, I see her actively being like, bad pitch. No, this is not a bad pitch. It is just a pitch. And then she'll say her pitch. Um, it is a good thing to practice. If you catch yourself, start practicing, not apologizing for things. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I just did it to you yesterday. I sent you an idea of something. I said, okay, here's the cliche version of this, but it's, you know, and it's almost because you, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put a pin in what I'm about to say and save it for okay. a little long, a little later. Okay. I have, I have a bunch more, but I feel like this is a whole other episode. So I'm going to save some of these for next week. But the last one I'm going to say, Barbie, mm. adapted screenplay or original screenplay, Joshua? I definitely think it's an original screenplay. Yeah. I wish I was a little bit more prepared right now with other examples that in the past that have been adapted and original. But I definitely don't think Barbie is based off of anything aside from a Barbie doll. A name. A name. Yeah. That's it. Yep. I know. It's tough. Yeah. It is tough. And it also kind of sets a precedent for, I don't know, like, let's say there's a story about the Redwoods where there's a missing hiker or something, <laughs> you know, and it's yeah. called Redwoods. Adapted screenplay? Yeah. I agree. It's it's all complicated. It's one of the most original movies I've ever seen in my life. So for it to fall under adapted sort of hurt my soul a bit. And I understand why they took that because, of course, there's a brand behind it. But more than that, they're like pieces from like the lore of Barbie, like right. the pregnant Barbie is in there. And in, in real life, she was like very quickly shelved because nobody wanted the pregnant Barbie. And she's kind of considered the weirdo in the Barbie land, right? Like there's... Oh, things. There's I guess, things in it. <laughs> I guess from that perspective, I could understand a little bit more of, well, there's all these characters. There's the Alan character. There's Ken. There's, but there's different Kens. But yeah, I guess maybe there are actually yeah. different. But there are. Okay. So the characters are kind of based. You know what? When we do our Oscar show, which I'm, we haven't talked about at all. And, and I'm just saying we should do an Oscar show. Let's <laughs> talk about this. Let's talk about it. Okay. Okay. All right, let's move into our main topic, imposter syndrome. Let's go. What is it? So imposter syndrome is when you believe that you are undeserving of your achievements and the high esteem in which you are actually, in truth, held by others. You will typically feel like a fraud, even though you are actively achieving success or just other good things in your career. And instead of acknowledging all of the things that are happening to you and your abilities being the reason that you got to this place, you instead start to attribute all these good things to luck, to good timing, to ah, I just pulled that all-nighter and I can't pull that, pull that all-nighter all the time. It was just that one heavy effort that I pulled that got me that A. Now, if any of that sounds familiar to you, you definitely have imposter syndrome, just like me. <laughs> and honestly, like 99% of the people I have met, like, yeah. I feel like I don't know very many people who don't have imposter syndrome, whether they admit to it or not. Yeah. I want to take a second. Yeah. To talk about what psychologists think causes imposter syndrome. I'm ready. Because this it's is... not like an actual, I'm going deep. Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> it's not an actual diagnosis. It is a quote unquote syndrome. It's been studied since the late 1970s. It's just kind of a habit of personality that uh, psychologists have noticed. And they first started studying it in highly successful women who, was, who were really showing this. And it was very confusing to, to psychologists. And psychologists have found that women and women of color in particular still feel imposter syndrome more than men. Of course, plenty of men feel it. Of course, but statistically, women and women of color tend to talk about it, having it more. Um, but there are common personality traits between people who experience imposter syndrome, which I find very interesting and I can definitely relate to. Maybe you can too, Joss. Uh, perfectionism. 
uh, struggle with self-efficacy, meaning you struggle with thinking that you are able to efficiently accomplish your tasks. And mm. also neuroticism, being abnormally sensitive, obsessive, or anxious. Oh. <laughs> now, <laughs> oftentimes, these things can stem from having a competitive competitive environment when you were growing up. So parents who intensely pressure their kids to um, have academic achievements or um, you know, sports achievements, they often go on to develop these feelings of imposterism. And I love my mom very dearly, but that is definitely why I have imposter syndrome. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, it should also be noted that imposter syndrome isn't just a constant state of being. So it can flare up in just particular situations. And that's that's still a feeling of imposter syndrome, even if you don't feel it on a normal day-to-day -day basis. The other, other extreme, of course, is it's just this constant gnawing that you always have in your life. So according to psychologists, how do you combat imposter syndrome? The first thing that they encourage people to do is to learn how to tolerate discomfort. Like, it's okay if you don't know the right answer. It's okay if you fail in front of other people. And once you start accepting that imperfection does exist in you <laughs> as well as others, you can start overcoming this feeling that you always have to be perfect in order to achieve and deserve success and to be seen as successful. Now, that's just the textbook definition. I want to talk about how it actually appears in our own lives as screenwriters. Yeah. Not Joshua, ready. Joshua, would you like to go I, first? <laughs> I, would, I was not ready for this. <laughs> okay. Um, there is an article that you sent me. It was about Scott Frank, who's a very prolific screenwriter. And the headline is, The Hollywood Failure Earning $300,000 a Week. And, and then there's this My mom thing. actually sent this to me. Thanks, oh, mom. really? Dude, yeah. sh shout out to your mom. And just, it's, you know, it says, despite a string of success, this script doctor still suffers from imposter syndrome. And without getting too far into this, this uh, article, it, it basically just talks about how Scott Frank, who wrote Get Shorty when he was younger and has had a ton of success, he comes onto these movies to uh, become a script doctor, which essentially means to punch up dialogue or to fix a story or to fix a storyline or whatever it may be. And he just goes on to talk about how he still feels like after all of this success that he's had, that he's still not like a successful screenwriter. He's going to get found out or, or something to that extent. And I think that's where this started from. And so I just wanted to use that as a jumping off point because if Scott Frank suffers from this, anybody yes. can suffer from this as a screenwriter. Yes. Here's the thing. Coming from out of state, shout out to Wisconsin. Mm. <laughs> This Sorry. is gonna be this is gonna be a therapy session. I already feel it. No, so coming from out of state, you move here, and this I think anybody who doesn't understand the entertainment industry, which I did not, and to a certain extent, I had no idea about the entertainment industry when I moved out here. It was just that I loved movies. You start getting around people who are so like well versed, and I remember I I moved out here and someone. It was like, oh, you're green. You're green. And I was like, okay. And they're like, that means you don't know what you're doing. Or like, it means you're new to the job. And I was like, yeah, okay. But it's like those little things where it's like <laughs> death by a thousand cuts of people telling mm -hmm. you, you don't know what to do, or you're around people who are doing things that you don't know how to do. And it's in this fast moving arena. And I remember moving out here. I was like, I don't know anything. And it's, it's, you're trying to play catch up a little bit and you don't know if you're going to be able to play catch up. So I say this all to say the imposter syndrome, I think was inevitable because you're trying mm -hmm. to, I don't know, I was trying to get a job. I was trying to become a PA. I'm trying to do these things. And people are like, go talk to the grip and get me, you know, and get someone a coffee. Yeah. That's another thing too, is like people in this industry, like your value, the way they treat you is based on your success. It's not even based on experience necessarily. It's like, what have you done lately that's successful? Yeah. And like, how have you shown success? And then I will treat you well. Yeah. Oh. So yeah. yeah imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. very real when you're treated that way. 
Yeah. So I was just kind of going off on a bit of a ramble, but that's, a, that's to say, I think looking back on it, I can say that the ground floor for me was like, I don't know what I'm doing, which was a benefit at the same time mm-hmm. because there's ignorance is bliss. So there's a little bit of a throwing caution to the wind about things that you're doing. Yeah. You just feel like, then you start talking to people who are like, you know, you talk to like, you have your first producer meeting and someone's like, where are you from? Oh, Wisconsin. Oh, oh, that's so cute. Oh, okay. And you're like, already like oh god you know he's like oh i you have a little wisconsin accent oh oh that's oh okay oh, you're a sweet yo. boy <laughs> oh that's so nice i know someone from wisconsin and that's how you get treated a lot when you're younger and yeah. you move out from uh, so sure i was i just treated like garbage when i had some of my first assistant jobs yeah you, yeah. you kind of, it's it's you kind of get talked down to right and that oh yeah that creates that feeling i think in your brain. I know more than you. Yeah. And, and you need to shut up and know your role. Right. And and then you're kind of coming from a place of like playing catch up and you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. I hope no one finds out. Right. And as you were talking, that's so true. You feel like you come out here and you, sh- for some reason, you're made to feel and then you feel that you should just know everything. You should just know how it all works already. And that is absurd. Yeah. You at, like you should be able to be like, hey, boss, I'm sorry. I just moved here four months ago. I don't understand what you said. Can you please explain it to me? <laughs> because you should be able to say that, but you're kind of not allowed. You're, you're just sort of expected to do the job and figure it out somehow. Yeah. That being said, you should ask questions. You that, should. You should that's definitely. Like, I wish I asked more questions and admitted I was wrong more. Or admitted I didn't know something more when I was yeah. younger. So like, am I going to step on your toes if I kind of go into my imposter syndrome? No, please. I, I, I jump in? I, I, please. So when I, <laughs> when I realized we were talking about this, this episode, I kind of realized that I have gotten over the most crippling parts of my imposter syndrome. And if, I'm so grateful, but parts of it still linger. Obviously, my soul, my soul is stained by imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to talk about like what it looked like and then how it happened. Because I feel like I just woke up and I suddenly didn't have it, but that's not true. There was a long, long process of how I got over it. So I want to kind of talk about that now. Like I have had imposter syndrome all the way through yesterday kind of like like last year like oh oh, oh wow like okay very yeah, recently. I, was, I was joking but yeah okay <laughs> and i think being a showrunner really helped because i before becoming a showrunner for tomb raider i had been a staff writer on the witcher blood origin and then had written a lot of movies i had also written a pilot that i sold to amazon and then developed it with amazon and a director and producers too and a showrunner who was going to co-show run it with me so i had done a lot of work already but i had never managed people i had never run a room i had never gone through production and certainly not animation production and been sort of the decision maker in any of these situations i've always been the one who looked to others to make decisions. So therefore, I that's the place that I felt I belonged was a place where I looked to producers to tell me what to do. I looked to directors to tell me what to do, etc. And suddenly I found myself in a job where I was telling people what to do. And I better know the answer or else the show is going to be shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so first of all, absolute ball of anxiety for a very long time on the beginning of Tomb Raider, just questioning every decision I was forced to make. Every email that came in gave me anxiety. Every call I tried to like put to voicemail and hope that I didn't have to answer it. Like I was not doing well. And then I realized that I had no choice but to tell someone I didn't know the answer to something because I couldn't pretend anymore. For the most part, I would pretend and -hmm. then I would just Google it and look it up later and ask someone else so that I didn't look like a fool in front of the actual person who was asking me this question. And then I realized I couldn't do that anymore. And I had to admit, hey, I don't know this. Can you explain it to me? And the world didn't end. And for me, that was a huge lesson because I thought the world would end in the sense that that person would think I was an absolute complete moron. I would be humiliated. They would never trust me again. And he would spread that rumor to everyone. Like all of these things I assumed would happen if I said I didn't know something. 
Mm-hmm. And none of that happened. Instead, that person said, here's the answer. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> what oh it's okay it's oh and then that was like that opened the floodgates suddenly i was telling everyone i didn't know how to do things and i was like so relieved to be able to say hey i don't know that can you explain it to me but i think what gave me the confidence as i started doing that more and more was that the more information i was given the more they answered my questions because i didn't know them the better i got at things so it wasn't like I just stayed in this infinite space of not knowing the answer to things. I grew and I became stronger. And now that I'm still running this other show, I have a lot of answers already and I'm good to go. And I think also to get into therapy here, being with Paul has also helped because with like in my personal life, I've now found that I can do wrong things or stupid things. And there are no consequences that way. Like it's only met with acceptance and love. And I think I quickly started learning in these last few years that being wrong is totally okay and that being imperfect does not actually kill me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um so I think like that's how I've gotten over it in the last year, but it's taken my entire life to get here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that was what's so interesting about the Scott Frank thing is because I think with even little micro successes along the way, that helps your imposter syndrome and it reminds you that oh, I do kind of know what I'm doing and So to read that he has had these macro successes and he still kind of has it, that that's where it was kind of like, oh man, that that yeah, that hits. But to what you were saying, I think honestly, I think like having to manage people and having to make decisions is such a big, big deal in terms of just kind of gaining a certain confidence and just being able to be like, okay, I I guess I kind of do have some answers here and it is okay to be wrong and it is okay to ask questions and hopefully someone will tell me and, and it, no one is going to think I'm stupid. I I do know Mm -hmm. what I'm doing. I just want to go back to one thing. Mm -hmm. This is not to, not to be too scattered about this, but I do think a lot of the general relationships that are created in the industry, like when you're first coming up and you get like an agent or a manager, you're kind of relying on them for a lot of the answers. And then Mm -hmm. I think that it creates this natural dynamic where maybe you don't want to ask your agent or your manager a question because you don't want to sound stupid. You want to sound like you have everything put together. And that's like the imposter syndrome coming through. And so this Mm -hmm. just kind of goes back to this idea that I think a lot of, it's hard, like in the beginning, it's just like in the DNA of these early relationships, at least it was for me, where you are already kind of put at a disadvantage of being the person who doesn't have the answers. Yeah. So it's, it's, I think you just, if you can acknowledge that and just start asking the wrong questions or asking the questions, knowing you're going to be wrong, getting, feeling confident in that, it can kind of help solve some problems. Yeah. I really relate a lot to what you just described with your agents And I still suffer from it a bit. I'm starting to come out of it like I can see the light on the other side. But I've always suffered from when my agents tell me I'm not ready for something or like I don't have the sample for that or I'm not a big enough writer to go after that thing. I'm always Mm -hmm. like, yep, you're right. You're right. I don't have the thing. I don't have the experience. I don't have the talent. You're right. You're right. You're right. I still need to build and build and build to get there. And now I'm at a place where I'm like, Actually, that's not true. (laughs) I think I do have the talent and the expertise now to do bigger things than you maybe think I can do. Like, let's fucking go. (laughs) Yeah. Because I have been wrong so much and still come out the other side. And I think so. And in this case, I do think being wrong really does help you. And to go back to the Scott Frank thing just for a second, because he has, go to his IMDb, (laughs) he has movies like Logan, Wolverine, Interpreter, Minority Report, Out of Sight, Get Shorty. Like, he's done some big things. And the fact that he, in the article, talks about how he had to go to therapy to get over his depression and anxiety over this imposter syndrome is so interesting to me mm-hmm. because I it does highlight how people, and I was just told a story about this last night about a big writer who, huge successes, but was still hard on himself for not being on the blacklist. And you're like, who cares? (laughs) You're beyond the blacklist. But there's this feeling of like, well, if I'm truly good, 
this perfectionism aspect. Like, why aren't I on the blacklist? I need to, I need to be doing these things. And for me, that's where I think my imposter syndrome still sort of rears its ugly head is in this idea of constantly needing success after success after success after success to prove that I am a success. So I'm just going to tell a story that was very like, it happened to me last night. So it's still very fresh and was like, kind of like a light bulb moment for me. I had my goal buddy session with my other goal buddy, Steve Desmond. I know it's a touchy subject here on the podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> Talk about having imposter syndrome. What's wrong? What's wrong with me? <laughs> I told Steve that one of my career goals is to get an overall deal. And he was, that's great. He says, why do you have that goal? And I said, well... I think I'm a good producer and I'd like to write and produce and develop other writers. And an overall deal does give you the kind of like financial framework with which to do that because you work for like a studio kind of pays your overhead because they believe in you as a talent that you're going to develop materials and bring it to them that they can then make and make a lot of money off of. So I want to write and produce is what I said. And Steve's like, great, that's a great answer. And then there was this pause <laughs> and I was like, okay, but there's another reason. I want an overall because it feels like, I don't know, it's the next natural step in my career. Like how the blacklist was sort of this, 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 this uh, white whale that this A-list writer couldn't get. Like I feel like the overall deal is the next thing. And I'm constantly terrified that the bottom of my career is just going to drop out and everything I've built will disappear and I will be homeless. So I have to keep this ball rolling or else I will die. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, Taja. As a friend, you should look into why you're so afraid of that. And I feel like I have looked into it, but when he said it to me that way, I was like, oh. <laughs> I like a sense of calm came over me. And I talked to Paul afterwards. And, and then in reading kind of more about imposter syndrome, I realized that this is a lingering part of my imposter syndrome, that this anxiety to constantly be doing, because if I don't, I will fail utterly, is imposter syndrome. And I think... <laughs> Notice the two realities here. It's either I am working and I'm making lots of money and I'm very successful or I am homeless. There is no in between for my brain. <laughs> it is one or the other, which I think if we go back to the definition of imposter syndrome, it is about these extremes, right? Yeah. So I think my biggest flare up nowadays is about this kind of perfectionism where if I cannot keep my career going at maximum speed at all times then it must be proof that I am a sham, that all the success and the talent that people claim that I have is actually not real, that I am just a hack and I'm not going to make it like all the other writers who weren't able to make it. And the way I was able to articulate it last night was it feels like there's this huge minefield between me and like the ultimate success that I see on the other side. And I think for me, ultimate success, because it's based in fear, is it's just financial security, like the ability to take care of my family without worrying about being homeless, right? Like that's on the other side of the minefield. It's not even like movies getting produced. Like I would be fine with Scott Frank's career. He has huge movies, but he's also just like getting $300,000 a week to maybe yeah. not have his name on something. He's just writing and revising scripts. Fine. Great. <laughs> but between me and success in this minefield are all the writers who have failed. <laughs> and I remember... I got a call when I was an assistant at Universal that has always stuck with me. I think I've told this story before on the podcast where as an assistant, you are not allowed to take unsolicited calls. You just can't because let's say someone sends in a script to Tasha, the assistant that has a car chase in it that in any way resembles Fast and Furious 100. They don't want that writer suing them, saying, well, here's the receipt of Tasha accepting my, my script back in this date. So I had to tell this writer who called my prepared speech of, look, we don't accept unsolicited materials, legal reasons, blah, blah, blah. And he says, I'm an Emmy award-winning writer. Look me up. Please just look me up right now. You can see that I'm not lying. And as he said that, and as I could hear the desperation in his voice, my heart just really broke for him because this man who had clearly been an Emmy award-winning writer on top of the freaking world at that point, we're in the Emmy season right now. You can see all yeah. the pictures. People are just beaming. Now he had no agents, no managers to represent him and was trying to sell his script to an assistant at Universal. So that always stuck with me as like 
a glimpse into what my future could be if I'm not careful. Totally. And my agents are always <laughs> helpfully reminding me that I'm so lucky to be working year after year because so many writers have a year of work and then nothing for five years, right? So that's always in my head. Now, obviously, I don't know this man's story. There could be a million reasons why he is no longer repped, no longer working. All I know is he stepped on some mine out there in that minefield, and I don't know which mine it was. So I look out over this minefield, and I feel like I am always constantly trying to puzzle out how to avoid these mines that other people have fallen into, which is clearly, if you could just tell from that imagery, is just a state of constant anxiety. <laughs> so that is where my imposter syndrome lives now. It's no longer in like, oh no, the worry of if I'm going to be wrong or not. It's like, it's that. That's the next piece I have to figure out, Josh. <laughs> no. This is why Steve's such a great go buddy for you because I, although would encourage you and be like, F that, you're fine, you're good, you're golden. But I, I operate in the same exact territory. I'm like, <laughs> you do. like I do. I, I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I, I have same thing, blacklist aspirations, overall deal aspirations. And mm -hmm. if they are not hit, I'm a complete failure. I moved out mm -hmm. here. I, you know, people have told me, they're like, you have a family, like you have a daughter that is healthy and that's and great. Yes. Health and everything health as well. That's the most important thing. But in terms of like, like we're talking about career and stuff like that, like there's, there is a block in my brain that I'm like, yeah, no, of course I'm like, I'm going to be a father to my daughter, but we're talking about the entertainment industry here and right. I am a failure because I moved out here. And if I don't hit these certain yeah. things, then I failed. Yeah. And that is not going away. <laughs> it's just not. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not. I mean, maybe I'll be able to, I don't know, deal with it differently at some point, but now is not that time. I don't know if this will help you, but something we also talked about in the meeting, and I, do, I agree with you. I don't think an overall deal is is a ridiculous goal to have and to always have in, have in your head. No, of course um, not. But something he asked me was like, what does your career look like like, how do I phrase this? Um, what is your happy career? Like, what is the career that you can imagine that makes you happy? And I've started to realize that maybe I don't want to work in live action television because animated television, as long as I'm making WGA sort of minimums there, because mm -hmm. animation minimums, just so everybody knows, is no way to live. <laughs> they don't pay you enough. It is very hard. I've known people who have been showrunners in animation and have had to move out of LA because they can't survive. So WGA, adult animated shows, creatively, those are all the things that I love. And mm -hmm. it would be the same content creatively as a live action show would be. But I get to do it from the comfort of my home. I don't have to travel all over the world, leave yeah. my husband and my dog and um, and go for months and months away and extremely stress. It's very stressful, but I'm at home. I get to have dinner with my husband. Like that's just a better life. And then also writing live action movies, which I really, really, really enjoy. And Steve was like, that's great. Like then you can let go of the live action stuff. Just work on the stuff that you want to grow that you know will make you happy and like produces the life that you want to have. Don't feel like you have to go after all of the things mm -hmm. because those things, even though it feels like that's what success looks like, it's not success for you. So why, why put that out there? So I don't know if that's helpful to you. Maybe no, you can let is. go of certain things that other people think are success that you don't. But. Well, I'll try, but I, I, <laughs> you're no, like I, me, you want all of it because <laughs> it's all, I get it. But I understand. I understand. And that's, listen, if you're creating awesome stuff, even if it's an animation, which is what you're doing. You're creating things that are incredible. It'd be one thing if you were miserable making yeah. you know, content in, uh, in, on an animation platform that you're like, I can't believe I'm doing this. That's one thing, but that's not the case. So that I would, if that's, yeah, I agree with Steve. Yeah. It's an interesting way of looking at it. I have uh, one last thing. Yeah. This actually just, this came up yesterday, actually. I was talking to a woman who's a friend and a producer, and I'm bringing this up because we haven't had an in-depth conversation about, I, I know we're outside of like the industry, and um, and I was talking to her, and I was talking about some of the stuff she worked on, and, and then she was asking me, we're talking about action comedies, this and that, and thrillers, like she kind of knew I worked in that realm, but 
I, I said to her, I was like, what do you think about short, short stories? And, uh, we talked about that for a minute and she then made a comment to me. She was like, but it doesn't seem like you really need to worry so much about short stories because, um, you know, like action movies and thrillers and stuff like that. I mean, that doesn't, is, does that lend to short stories? And I, I was like, well, then all of a sudden that like feeling, this feeling that I haven't had in a while kind of came over me. And I was like, well, I actually like action adventure films and I like other genres and, and, and I would love to kind of get into those other genres. And then I start to like stumble over like certain things that I've mm. talked about. And I had this feeling of like, oh no, I'm being pigeonholed. Oh my God, how do I get out of being pigeonholed about this? Oh, I, I can mm. write a short story. And, and it, it had that imposter syndrome yeah. feeling all I over can, it. I can feel that feeling you had. Just out of left field. <laughs> In too. your chest right Came out of here nowhere. As I wasn't talking. even ready. Yeah, like, yeah no. totally. But you're right. Like I, that's always been... The be- like someone said this to me early in my career when you know I was stressed out about being a writer and I felt like oh writing is the worst job in the in the business we don't get paid and if we do get paid it's very little and we work so hard for free and a producer was like or maybe it was a director they were they said actually writing is the best because unlike a director and an actor like you can create new material mm-hmm. all the time. Like it's solely in your court. And if you are stuck in action comedy and you suddenly want to write genre like horror, you can. (laughs) You just have to do it. And you are in a new lane, my friend. And I was like, oh, yeah. Totally. Okay. Yeah. Writers actually have more power and control over their careers than a lot of other people in our industry. Yeah. No, the writers can write themselves out of anything. That's the beauty of it. I used to worry more about that, but. It did catch me off guard yesterday, but uh, in general, yeah. now I don't even think about it. I'm like, I just like these movies. I'll, I'll write it. Yeah, do it. I agree. <sighs> All right. I'm tired after that episode. <laughs> yeah. Do you want me to uh, Venmo you for this this session, this therapy session? <laughs> yes, please. I'll Venmo you back. <laughs> <laughs> this therapy. Brought to you by the Act Podcast. All right, quote of the day. And this comes from a writing book that I encourage all of you to read. It's called Bird by Bird. Perfectionism is the voice of the oppressor, the enemy of the people. It will keep you cramped and insane your whole life. And it is the main obstacle between you and a shitty first draft. I think perfectionism is based on the obsessive belief that if you run carefully enough, hitting each stepping stone just right... You won't have to die. The truth is that you will die anyway, and that a lot of people who aren't even looking at their feet are going to do a whole lot better than you and have a whole lot more fun while they're doing it. And Lamott. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. I'm Joshua Hallman on Twitter, Josh Hallman on Instagram. And as always, the Act 2 podcast is a production of Act 2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist. 